Happy Saturday. It's October 28th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we are two of your airmail editors who are here to give you tricks and treats and even more things you didn't even ask for. Wow. Maybe that's money or something. I don't know. If there's more things, it sounds like a great Halloween. Ashley, what's your costume? And don't say you don't do costumes. I don't do costumes. Come on. Half the time, I'm just wearing a costume anyway without even being aware of it. So no, I don't feel the need to put out any special effort for this day. Okay. You're not going as Travis and Taylor, because I'm going to go as Ken. Actually, Michael, you always wear a costume. Come on, what are you wearing this year? Are you Ken? I've been told by my little friend Oscar that I need to go as a kind of wizard, so he's given me a big beard and a staff. I just do what the kids tell me to do. All right, I'm into it. I like that look for you. Very good. Well, our issue of airmail this week is actually all candy, so you don't even need to eat those Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. We have got you handled. We've got so much deliciousness to talk about here, Michael. I don't even know where we should start. Well, let's start with what we have in the bag here. First, we've got the trial that has Paris buzzing. For four generations, the Wildenstein family has reigned over a colossal art dynasty there in near total secrecy. And now a case threatens to destroy it all. And John von Southern will join us from France to give us all the crazy details and intrigue. Then you may have heard of the Netflix show Blue Zones, which travels to those places on the planet where there are clusters of people who have lived to be a hundred. What's their secret? The show asks. And can the rest of us learn from it? Well, the always funny Cassie David tried to follow the lessons of the Blue Zone, and she'll be here to tell us how successful she was, or wasn't. And finally, if you live in New York City, we hope you've seen the building that our critic Paul Goldberger has declared the best piece of new architecture along the New York waterfront right now, and arguably, he says, the most important. What is it? He'll join us with his insights. Ashley, ding dong, where would you like to begin? All right, well, let's start with the place where there is absolutely no candy, which is in the blue zones around the world that Cassie <laughs> David writes about in this issue. Cassie's a writer at large for Airmail. She's also the author of an unmissable essay collection called No One Asked for This, and she also is reporting to us live from Los Angeles. Welcome, Kazi. Hi, Kazi. Hi, you guys. So happy to be here. We're so happy to talk to you about the art of living forever. Is this a field you've always been interested in or are you new to this universe of Andrew Huberman land? Something I've had as an obsessive person and a hypochondria. It's definitely, I would say, like my only pastime and hobby is just trying to gather as much information as possible in order to live longer and healthier. But it really wasn't until I watched this show where I realized you could actually live that long and not be sick. And that's why I was like so inspired by it, because I still felt like we were all doomed, even though I did gather all these tips. Okay, so what were some of your most transformative takeaways from watching this show on Netflix? I guess it was just that like, it's almost like a free diet, like all of these things he's giving out, it didn't have a sense of It felt so much more inspiring than, as you said, listening to an Andrew Huberman or any of those podcasts where they're like obsessed with health, where it feels kind of like a hopeless case because it takes up your entire day. Most people can't like get in a cold plunge and then get in an infrared sauna and back and forth and take all these supplements and exercise with weights. And it just is kind of demoralizing to think about all the things you were told to do, even if some of them are science based. None of them are as science based as these studies that are basically about these people who have lived until 100 in all these places around the world. So it's kind of like we listen to all these people who 
are either trying to sell you something or kind of guessing and but none of them have as much proof as basically studying these places around the world where people are living to 100 and they're doing so by living really simple lives. And it just feels like that's like such a great thing we should all be doing that can make us all live longer and healthier, especially since we're all so obsessed with anti-aging. It just kind of feels like, why aren't we doing this? Okay, so which elements of this wellness practice have you already integrated into your Cassie David routine? So I'm definitely trying to cook for myself. They don't eat a lot of meat in these blue zones around the world. There's basically like a few things that they all do. I mean, they all kind of do different things also. But Dan Buettner, who made the show and is kind of like a explorer of these blue zones and centenarians, but they all kind of do these few things. And one of them is none of them exercise at all. They're all kind of just moving naturally throughout the day and kind of like nudging themselves into physical activity. So whether it's like they don't have a lot of furniture, so they get up and down off the ground like 30 times a day because they don't have couches or they have a long road they have to walk up to get to their homes or gardening where you're forced to kind of like bend down and up. And so they're basically all doing a lot of physical activity without even meaning to do so chores around the house. Like but none of them are actually doing real exercise, meaning like no one's lifting weights, which they all can do at like it seems like 95. There's people that they show in this show that will like lift a heavy weight or ride a horse. So they do a lot of physical activity. They all kind of eat like a really simple diet of what Dan Buettner calls essentially peasant food. So it's extremely affordable. It's all whole grains, like greens, sweet potatoes. It's like just really easy. But I think it's just that the key is that they make it so delicious that you want to enjoy it. You want to eat it. And then they also are really mindful about their eating habits. So the moderate intake and the main thing is that they're not surrounded by or they weren't about junk food and these fast food places that have kind of taken over America. So paint the picture, because as you say in your story, you were watching this and decided to, quote, blues on the out of your life. But you talk about these people sitting on the floor, not eating any junk food. But like, I would imagine it's Tuesday night, you're home in your house on the couch with maybe some ice cream. Like you then spring into action. Like I've got to now go to Erewhon and get some ghee and start changing my life. Or how did this manifest itself for you? So I've always, as I said, been kind of obsessed with my own health in a very like selfish way, just out of fear of existing. So yes, I was watching it and I was like, oh my God, these are the new things I have to do because we've gone through so many different fads where it's like that guy with the celery who like came and convinced everyone they needed to have a celery juice every day and that that was going to be the key to looking and feeling young. There's been so many different things where they're just telling you these things. And I've never seen something so inspiring where you're seeing these older people with your own eyes that are healthy and feel good and spry and they're telling you all these things that they're doing and they're all in common with the things that the other people from Blue Zones are doing. So it's like, oh, yeah, like this is a really obvious thing that I feel like I can do that we can all do. Obviously, for me, because I'm so obsessive, it's not really in a healthy way, <laughs> but it still feels better and more just like possible than a lot of these other things that people talk about doing. There is a certain amount of existential angst that at least I feel and a lot of people feel when they read and watch shows like this. It's like, do I really want to live to be 145? Like you used to think that dying at 47 was the way to go as you write in your story. But now where do you want to be? By the way, I didn't want it just felt like an OK option, considering like it felt either like you die younger or you die old of a horrible 
sickness or disease. And the reason why this is so inspiring is because it makes you want to live to 100, which I wasn't someone who necessarily wanted to do that because they have such happy lives and they're not sick and dying. They're actually just 100 and looking 75. So it's basically like wanting to live to 75. Like, I think we all want more time on Earth. We just don't want to be old during that time. Like, I, at least that's how I feel. Kathy, what's the craziest thing you've done? Before you came across the Blue Zone, what's the craziest thing you'd done in, like, in a health fad or something that you're like, I can't believe I did that in a quest for health or longevity? So annoying about so many of these things is that you start to really implement them in your lives. And then in a matter of weeks, you hear, oh, actually, like you shouldn't be having bone broth every day because you don't want to have a lot of meat or it's immediately disproven after you start to actually do it. And it just feels like this happens all the time. Like you take a bunch of supplements or you take what's it called? AG. Do you guys know what that is? AG. Athletic Greens. OK, Ashley. Athletic Greens, which I've done. I did that because of Huberman. Yes, exactly. You take Athletic greens every day or you eat a bunch of flaxseed because you heard that but then you hear that it's actually really bad for your stomach it's like it always ends up backfiring and I feel like everything I've done I always find out later like oh actually like supplements are bad for you and need to do this I did cold plunge for like a certain amount of time and I ended up actually like it felt really good and I noticed a difference in my face and my body and how I felt and then over time I developed like and this is probably doesn't happen to most people but I developed like night sweats in the middle of the night because my like temperature was so like deregulated and then it's just like it not everything is for everyone but this stuff in this show is for everyone, and that's what's great about it. Isn't this part of the lesson of the Blue Zones? It's like all good things in moderation. It's like you see the old lady drinking wine at 89. It's just as long as you're doing and not everything's in balance, you can do anything, right? It's in balance, and it's the fact that they're not even thinking about living longer. Like, they don't even care about it. It's just like what's happening. They're just kind of like living their lives without intentionally seeking out to live longer and healthier. And like, we're just obsessed with looking younger and like, I don't know, the term anti-aging is already just so awful. It's like we should be for aging, but aging in this like really like beautiful, healthy way where we end up actually looking and feeling younger than any of these other things actually provide. Yeah, it's the Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk version of like, I grow my way to immortality versus I'm just going to have a good time and have a good life and enjoy myself and not get stressed out. And lo and behold, I'm 98 years old. Yeah. I mean, all these podcast guys, they're like, I feel like they're all friends and then they all do all these things together. And then they have millions and millions of followers, which they kind of preach on to. Whereas like if everyone knew, oh, if you have a cup of beans every day, it's supposed to extend your longevity by four years. Like there's these things that these people do that are you would just never think of implementing into your life. They all have this kind of a purpose of why they wake up in the morning, which I'm still trying to figure out. <laughs> but that seems to be a real big thing that they do that that keeps them living so long and also having a community of friends, Okinawa, off the coast of Japan. They have these groups called Moais where they have at least like six friends that they all have something in common with. So that's something I'm also having a problem finding. I would need to find like a seven people who all hate everything. And I think it might cancel out the effects of even having one of these groups to live longer. You've got us. Here's two people already. We could start our own Moai, you guys. And you know what? Something I've been doing that I learned from 
the people of Icaria in Greece is that they love like fresh tea. And so this is a really good tip for you guys. Sorry, you lost me a tea, but go ahead. It's they basically put in like fresh rosemary and ginger and turmeric and then just like have it in like a hot water and it's delicious and it's kind of changed my life. It's not in replace of coffee, Michael, but you can have it at the end of the day and it feels really refreshing and it supposedly will help you live to 100. Okay, I don't like tea, but I think it qualifies me for the moai because it goes into me hating everything. So yes, you're totally in. Well, Kazi, this is a great story and we love talking to you. So thank you so much for joining us. We wish you many, many years of health, happiness and marvelousness and hopefully another chat with us very soon. You guys too. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Kathy. All right, Michael. Well, do you think you're going to live to 100? Can I even ask you that? I feel like it's tempting fate. It is tempting fate. You just say you want to be healthy and mobile as long as possible, right? Listen, I listen to so many Huberman Lab podcasts that I think it's causing me more stress and anxiety than I had in the first place. So I'm probably not the one to ask. But anyway, thanks to Kazi for that great insight. No doubt if anyone lives to 140, it will be her. Yeah. Well, speaking of old things reborn and they've gotten a second life. Paul Goldberger's got a great report this week on something that's happening on your old stomping grounds, Ashley, out there in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. The old Domino Sugar Refinery in Brooklyn and how an architect named Vishan Chakrabarti has reimagined it for the city and put a new jewel on our skyline. Paul's a Pulitzer Prize winning architecture critic and the author of several books, including Building Art, The Life and Work of Frank Geary and Ballpark Baseball in the American City. Please welcome Paul Goldberger. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Good to be here. Okay, so Paul, when I was a young newbie in New York, I lived in Williamsburg on Broadway, and I used to go running every day by the Domino Sugar Factory on Kent Avenue, and it was a wasteland. It was basically desolate. There was nothing there except the ruins of a once great building. But a lot has changed since then. What has happened to this New York City landmark? Well, it could not have changed more dramatically, in fact. It's now the centerpiece of a huge development of housing and public space. It's a fantastic park, Domino Park, along the riverfront. And there's a lot of rather unusual and ambitious new housing that's gone up in the area. And the refinery itself, the actual factory, has been turned into an office building. It's, I think, one of the best waterfront projects we've seen in New York in the last generation. Yes, it's gentrification, which these days has a bad name, but it's about as good as that kind of evolution in neighborhood is going to be. And we're lucky to have it, all things considered. So, Paul, how did this come to be? Who's the brains behind it? It came to be because of basically the vision of one real estate developer, a young guy named Jed Walentis, who is one of the very few people who's inherited a real estate company in New York and done something really imaginative with it. His father was David Walentis, who founded this company called Two Trees, which pretty much invented Dumbo. And David has always been a fairly unusual figure in the real estate industry. He is an iconoclast. He loves old buildings. He cares more about neighborhoods than cares about money, too. I'm not going to pretend he's a saint, but he thought he can be difficult sometimes. But he also has just a real kind of sense of the grit and reality of the city and wanting to preserve it even as it evolves. And Dumbo, I think, is a great success. And he's now largely retired. His son runs the business and his son wanted to expand into some other new neighborhood and bought the rights to this huge tract that had formerly been the Domino Sugar Company, where another developed 
developer ran into financial trouble and was unable to complete the project and hadn't gotten very far. And then Jed did something which may in New York be either the craziest or the most daring thing imaginable, which is that he looked at that plan, decided even though it had gotten through all the gauntlet of impossible, endless, difficult city and community board approvals, that it was really kind of bland and boring and he wanted to start all over again and do something different, which meant the thing was going to take even more years and take even more money. And he managed to do it. And what we're now seeing is the results of this vastly improved, completely different plan. And who are the kinds of people who are living there, Paul? I mean, what's the residential situation like? Well, nobody's living in the old sugar refinery itself. That has become an office building. They were going to put housing in it in the earlier plan by this other developer. And Jed felt both that it wouldn't work terribly well as housing. You would end up having to screw up this beautiful old building to do that. And that the neighborhood could ultimately benefit from being more of a mixed use area and not just a place to live. So the new buildings are what contain housing. And it's so far had a real mix. Obviously, nothing there is dirt cheap. So it's not solving all of the city's housing problems, although there is some affordable housing in most parts of the complex, which the city now pretty much requires in most things. But there are young families. There are a lot of young professionals who do not have families, but there are some kids. What there is not, which is nice, is a huge number of rich absentee owners, the way we see in a lot of the large new Manhattan projects, where people treat these apartments as, as somebody once said, as safe deposit boxes in the sky, and not places actually to live in. You really do feel that the Williamsburg neighborhood and the domino section of it in particular is a place where people are living because they really want to live there and they are invested in what's going to happen in the neighborhood. Paul, it seems like, I mean, as you note in your review this week, one of the master strokes here is they hired an architect named Vishwan Chakrabarti and his vision, and for those people who don't live in New York City, this domino sugar refinery is an old red brick building. And I was wondering if you could take our listeners through what Chakrabarti's master stroke is, what the building looks like, and why you find it's such an impressive building. I'd be happy to. The building is what was really a great industrial ruin. It was in terrible shape, but it had been declared a city landmark and correctly so because it's a magnificent thing. It's this huge sort of Romanesque thing from the late 19th century, an age when people, even evil corporate overlords tended to build beautiful buildings, <laughs> and even though they may not have treated the people who worked in them very well. But it had fallen into terrible shape. It had not been used in decades, and it was not going to be an easy thing to turn into something else. What Vishan Chakrabarti decided to do as the architect of this building was to not even try to turn it into a conventional building, but allow the beautiful old brick facade to stand like a kind of historic relic, cleaned out the inside, scooped out what was left of it, which wasn't that much, and because in some cases there were not even floors left, and essentially built a new smaller office building inside it, leaving about 10 to 15 feet between a new glass wall and the old brick wall around it, where they took out what would remain of the windows. And so you have 
this rather beautiful pattern of brick open arches and the new glass building behind. And then they turn that intermediate space into almost like a garden. I mean, there are plantings in it and trees and things like that. So it's kind of like an atrium that's around the edges rather than in the center. The center is actually the elevators and the office floors. And then the whole thing goes up a little bit higher than the building and culminates in an arch, about half a semicircle, sort of what's called a barrel vault, all of glass. So the new building is like this glass thing that rises in the middle of the old one and then bursts out of the top. It's very beautiful and quite striking and exciting. And I think the space inside it is very beautiful. And the light is kind of filtered through the brick into the new building. And I was very, I have to say, very taken by it, actually. Yeah, I have to say as well, I mean, I saw it a month or so ago. I was coming back into the city from LaGuardia, coming across the bridge in the evening. And it was lit up. And was, you're exactly right. It just was all of a sudden, you so rarely see anything on the skyline anymore that grabs your eye. And it did that immediately. Yes, that's right. Totally right, Michael. It really does. And they also did one very cool thing. There was an old sign on the refinery that had the old logo of Domino Sugar in neon. And it was also like everything else falling apart. But people were kind of used to it. It was one of those things, sort of like the Pepsi-Cola sign elsewhere on the waterfront. And they decided to replicate it and they redid it in LED and put it on top of the refinery, which is not exactly where it was originally, but it's very cool. And it becomes both an homage to the old sign, to the old factory, and an identification thing for this whole new development with all these other buildings around it, all of which, by the way, are themselves interesting pieces of architecture. Annabelle Seldorf is the architect for one of them, Cook Fox another. They really have some talented architects doing unusual buildings in response to a new master plan that uh, Vishan Chakrabarty put together. Paul, my last question is, in a city where we seem to move in fits and starts in terms of inspiring architecture, do you have any hope that this will raise the bar and other developers will step up and we might see a new era of great public design for us? Well, we can certainly hope so. If I didn't hope something like that would happen, it would be too hard to get up in the morning. Every time anything good happens, it does raise the bar a little bit and it does inspire some people. Whether it inspires other developers right now, or maybe some young person who is just thinking of going into the field and gets excited and aims higher than he or she might have otherwise done. It can have that kind of long-term effect too. Good architecture always raises the bar and makes the city better. It's changed one neighborhood already, and that's all for the good. Yeah, it's made the city just a little bit more beautiful. A little bit more beautiful and a little bit more interesting, too. Well, Paul, thanks for allowing us to see the world through your knowledgeable eyes and for this note of optimism about New York City. Great to see you. Now, Michael, enough with living forever and architecture. We've got to get serious here. John von Southern is here to take us to the courtrooms in France to tell us about another case of rich people behaving badly, one of our favorite subject matters here. Yes, he has a story on the Willensteins, the French-American art merchant dynasty that has reigned over the art market for four or five generations in quite a mess in Paris, detailing perhaps embezzling and misappropriating billions of dollars. And it's got the whole city and maybe a few people sweating. Indeed. John is a writer at large for Alan. So the author of Monsieur Mediocre, One American Learns the High Art of Being Everyday French. And we're very happy to have him here. Welcome, John. Good to be back. So, John, okay, most of us know the Wildenstein family largely through Jocelyn Wildenstein, who is a bit of a 
tabloid fixture, not only for her many plastic surgery attempts, but also for her trash talking of her family. But it turns out the Wildensteins are actually fairly aristocratic, serious people, as you cover in your story. So, John, why are the Wildensteins back in the news these days? Well, that's a good question. It's basically they're being charged with tax fraud. It's a classic sense. And for the third time, which is kind of wild when you think about it, because usually people, once they're acquitted, that that's over. In France, they've been already acquitted twice, the last being in 2018. But the Cour de Cassation, which is kind of like France's Supreme Court, threw out the verdict and brought charges against Guy, who's the remaining heir. And he's the one that went on trial last week. And what exactly was he on trial for? I mean, what are the charges brought against him? Yeah, well, basically, the French government is saying that it's a case of tax fraud, that Guy, upon the, the death of his father, Daniel, upon the death of his brother, Alec, did not list all of the assets that the family owns on their estate taxes. So what the French government basically is saying is that there's a lot of stuff you didn't declare on the estate taxes and we're coming back and we want back taxes paid. And on top of that, they want a fine paid. And on top of that, since he wasn't forthcoming with his declarations, they want prison time as well. And how old is this guy? 75. His brother died in 2008 and the father died in 2002. So this has been a basically a 15 year legal odyssey, kind of a back and forth between the French government and Guy. This isn't just another tax case. This is, as you note in your reporting, according to the, the French prosecutor, it's the heaviest and most sophisticated in the history of the Fifth Republic. So, and I think you also note he stands to be penalized up to a billion dollars if found guilty, right? Right. I mean, if you add up the back taxes that the government is saying that they're owned, and the fine that he's going to assume he's found guilty as well. So where it gets tangly and what's been super interesting with this case is that the Wildensteins, what the French prosecution is saying, is that they've been doing this for 100 years of putting paintings inside of trusts, okay, blind trusts or hidden trusts, and then putting those trusts in offshore banking countries like the Caymans or Guernsey or the Bahamas. And inside those entities are two other companies, shell companies. So basically, it's kind of a long labyrinth of hiding assets so they don't have to declare them on taxes. And basically what the French government is saying is that it's okay to have trusts. And it's okay to even put your money in offshore banking. What's not okay is if you don't list them on your tax return. And so basically they're saying that they want what's actually owned. And let's talk about their artwork, John. I mean, they've got some pretty incredible paintings still in their private collections, right? Oh, yeah. That's the thing. I think it goes back all the way to George, who really started to build the collection. And he came over to New York in 1940 following the Nazi invasion of France. And then he started the family business, right? With a lot of blue chip art. So what, what are we talking about? What did he have? It's Van. Goes, it's Tintoretto's, it's Chagall's, it's anything you can imagine. And but a lot of them were afterwards hidden in safes in Switzerland or put in safes in the Bahamas. Some were even believed to be scuttled off in Learjet to Zurich at the time of death. So the French authorities couldn't track them. But it's a big collection. Yeah. But John, so back to Jocelyn. And this is, I think, part of the scandal or the question around the family is when she started talking, that they, they always, as you noted in reporting, also the family was very good at omerta, at silence and sort of keeping anyone from knowing how the family finances work. But when she was in a divorce, she went so far as to imply that the family dealt in art stolen by the Nazis, correct? Right. That's what her assumption was. And immediately 
really that generated a response from because up until then, they'd been very discreet. I think it was Daniel who said once, uh, in my family, we've raised discretion to the highest rung of mutism. And I think the fact that they never were in the press and that they never spoke kind of added to their kind of dark arts mystique and made them the power brokers of the art world that they were. But then when Jocelyn brought these charges in the press, they immediately, I think Daniel went on a kind of like a press tour to kind of fight back. And I think that's when the tax authorities started getting wise to what was going on with finances, because it was kind of like Jocelyn was the first to kind of start at least generating instant interest that something might be here. And John, what's the sense in Paris? Is the prosecution going to win this case or does it look like they'll be able to get away with it? They're thinking third time is a charm. And what is super interesting here is that the French Assembly passed a law in 2011 saying that it was obligatory to, if you have anything in trust outside of France, you must list it on your tax declaration, your estate tax declaration or any kind of declaration. And it was funny, it was called the Loire Wildenstein. So it was actually named after the Wildenstein. So way, it's kind of like Guy Wildenstein is being charged for breaking the Wildenstein law. It's like Michael Haney being brought up on charges because he broke the Michael Haney law. When does that happen? I don't even want to speculate what the Michael Haney law is, but... (laughs) It's probably for the best. John, one more thing I wanted to ask. Do we really think that there's a universe in which Guy went to prison for this? Yeah, that's the tough thing. The prosecution is asking for four years... And so there's a chance that he could do time. Yeah. Now, whether that would happen, French politicians or celebrities have been convicted before and the sentence never gets served. So we'll see. But there is a chance. There is a chance that both he could do time and pay a hefty fine. And as you know, in your story, he was protected by past administrations, right? He was a big backer of Nicolas Sarkozy. The former French president was very involved in his campaign. And for a while, a lot of people speculated that these charges were never brought during the Sarkozy administration because of Guy's proximity to Sarko. Now that that's been lifted and with the yellow vest climate in France right now, there seems kind of be a less of an appetite to protect somebody like Guy. Yeah, the world seems like it's plagued with much bigger problems, in fact. Yes, exactly. Also with this thing is Jocelyn was kind of like the first spark of the fire. And then it was Alex, Daniel's ex-wife, Sylvia Roth, who then came out with more. And then it was Alex's ex-wife, Luba Stupakova, who came out with even more information about all the, these trusts and hidden money. And so basically, uh, maybe Guy has become a victim of all the ex-wives of his brothers and dad. And also, which is curious, is Luba Stupakova is on the bench next to Guy because she's been involved with taking some of this hidden money. So she's facing charges as well, along with a whole slew of lawyers and notaries who are the people that drew up like these shell companies and fictitious trusts. And what the prosecution is saying were the ones that kind of manipulated a lot of like the finances and everything. And now they're on the trial as well. And they could go down. Well, a lot to discuss, a lot to unpack and a lot of art to think about, John. So thank you so much for this great story and for your take on it. Well, thanks for having me, guys. It is the weekend. I know you've got something you can recommend to us. I do. It's a new limited series called Fellow Travelers, which is based on the book of a friend of mine, Tom Mallon. It begins in Washington, D.C. in the 50s during the height of McCarthyism. And it tells the story of these two very ambitious young guys. One's eager to join the anti-communism crusade and the other's a State Department official. And they soon fall in love at a time when the town is in the middle of not just the Red Scare of McCarthyism, but also what came to be known as the Lavender Scare when the city was rocked by these anti-gay purges of government officials. It's a political noir story and it spans a decade from the 50s to the 70s. Uh, I really liked it. Very intriguing. Super good. It's called Fellow Travelers and you can see it now on Paramount Plus or Showtime. And you, my dear, what do you have? 
Okay. I do not have myself to credit for this, but I've been reading this novel called Bunny by Mona Awad. It came out in 2019 and it was a birthday gift from my friend Hannah Betts, who's a genius writer in her own right. But this is such a hilarious, very, very funny book. It's about female friendship. It takes place among a group of women in an MFA program for fiction. So you can only imagine the personalities involved. It's extremely funny. It's also extremely dark, which is why I love it. Um, but really snappy writing, uh, fun plot, like the kind of immersive book you could read in a weekend and really enjoy. It is called Bunny by Mona Awad. Highly recommend it. Speaking of spicy, reminds me of Posh Spice, which reminds me of the Beckham documentary that you recommended a couple weeks ago. And Brooke and I have been checking it out. And I got to tell you, we're fascinated. Brooke especially, she's riveted. It's great. I recommend it to everyone following up on you. It's so good, right? My favorite thing is that after like the second episode and you've got all the trials and tribulations of Beckham and the World Cup and Man United. And she's like, Brooke said, I can't believe I didn't know any of this at the time. And I said, you weren't following football at the time. It was the late 90s. She said, I know. But it's a whole side I think people don't know about both of them. And it's terrific. It's terrific. I love the Spice Girls more than ever. I mean, I have to say, like, if you are a certain age in London, let's just say you are over 35 years old and a Spice Girls song comes on, doesn't matter where you are, you are going to start dancing. And I've seen this happen now six, seven times. And especially at a party when people have been overserved and are having a great time, inevitably someone puts on a request for Spice Girls. And it's a lot of fun, I have to say. It was a cultural moment that you and I missed living in America, but I have to tell you, these people are still big. Like I would go to a Spice Girls reunion show, just putting that out there. So who needs Travis and Taylor when you got, you could do Posh and Bex back in like 1999 and just go old school? Truly nothing would be better for me. The purple suits they wore to the wedding. Okay, I'll stop. Anyway, we thank you all so much for joining us. Wishing you all a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much for joining us. Michael, will you please read us out? Absolutely. And just remember, check your candy. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alice Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, thank you again for joining us.